Thank you for having us. Let's pray. And if you have your Bible, we're in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The title of today's message is Unashamed of the Truth. Unashamed of the Truth. Rejoicing in the Centrality of the Gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And although these are odd circumstances, Lord, because of restrictions, Lord, we still have exactly what we need. It's what we just asked for in song. Show us Christ. If we gain Christ and lose everything else, we've lost nothing. Lord, I thank you for this dear group of saints. Or for Jason and Jason and Kramer and John and for the various leaders and the way the gospel is growing and bearing fruit here, Lord. We pray this morning whether we came in leaping and rejoicing and filled with the Holy Spirit, Lord, or whether we came in barely making it wounded, fearful, or anywhere in between, God, we pray, Psalm 119.18, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. God, help us see the beauty of Christ so that obedience to Christ flows out of a heart of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So if you heard my sermon that was sent out in verses 8 through 15, and just kind of quickly review that, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, those who are in Rome, of course, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, Make you mention of you always. He says, I long to be with you. I want to encourage your faith, and I want my faith to be encouraged by you. I want to reap a harvest among you of those who do not yet know Christ. But he says something really interesting in verse 15 as well. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Well, that's interesting because earlier in the chapter, he called them the saints who are in Rome. So you're saying you want to preach the gospel to people who have already heard the gospel. The answer is a resounding yes. And so... The main point that I'm going to operate from this morning, and I kind of try to give a thesis because if I don't know, if I can't say it in one sentence, I might not know my text well enough, so this is maybe more for my sake than yours, but here's the, the point that I distilled it down to. In light of everything from Romans 1.1 to 1.17, Christians should eagerly declare the gospel inside and outside of the church. Christians should eagerly declare the gospel inside and outside of the church. So as we pick up in verse 16, with an astounding economy of words, these two verses explain the gospel that Paul was so eager to preach. So just glance back up at verse 14 and 15. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then verse 16 starts with one of those critical words, for... So now I'm going to tell you why I'm so eager to preach this gospel to you. What is this gospel? And that's exactly what he's going to do. Paul was eager to preach to Christians and non-Christians in Rome. And moreover, I think these verses are fitting since many of us, myself included, for a myriad of different reasons, we battle what one author named Luma Sims coined gospel amnesia. We often suffer from gospel amnesia. 
We need to be reminded of what we know. We don't need new truth. We need old truth spoken with passion. And beloved, I am unashamed to preach this gospel to you because frankly, I'm painfully aware of how much I need it myself. What do I need when the baby wakes up too early? We have a, a one-year-old as of two days ago. And he thinks it's a good idea to get up at 545. That's a bad idea. It's very sanctifying. But what do I need? What do I need when the baby gets up too early? My schedule's interrupted. What do I need when money's tight? What do I need when temptation seems to be curled up on my doorstep for an extended stay? What do I need when relationships are strained? What do I need when sin begins to leak from my mouth because gossip is more pleasurable than Jesus in that moment? What do I need as a Christian? I need the same thing that everybody in Minnetonka and every one of the Twin Cities needs, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I thought I could do you no bigger favor without knowing all of your stories, and I know there are many. But I know the one thing that this heart needs, and I know the one thing that your hearts need, and that is the gospel of Jesus. And praise God, that's what Paul is going to give us today. So I have five points. Um, Looking at the clock now, I wish I had three, but we have five. We're going to get through them, I think. So I'll give you my main point again. Christians should eagerly declare the gospel inside and outside of the church because the gospel of Jesus Christ, number one, is a scandalous truth. It is a scandalous truth. Look with me at verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm eager to preach it to you, and I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that's interesting to me if you just pause there and go, if you just started in verse 1 of chapter 1 and just worked your way to verse 16, you would notice that he hasn't really talked about shame. It seems a little out of place in light of the totality of chapter 1. He hasn't really given us any inclination of being ashamed. So now, why all of a sudden the bold declaration that I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel? So as I was taking notes, I just wrote, why, why bother mentioning this? Well, I think the reason Paul gives this declaration is because of what he would go on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Starting in verse 18 and beyond, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He says, Greeks want wisdom. And you just think about the ideologies that were alive and well at the time of the writing of the letter to the Romans. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Pythagoras. It had already come and gone. These heavy-hitting philosophical ideas were already there. And here comes Paul into that milieu. And what does he preach? A crucified Savior on a bloody cross in an empty tomb. And repent and come to him as Lord. It's crazy. Unless it's true. Greeks want wisdom. Jews want power. Give us, give us someone who could kick out the Romans. Give us military power. And Paul says, no, I give you a crucified Messiah. So when you look at the totality of Paul's writings and you, you come and kind of press it into verse 16, it makes perfect sense why he would say, I am not ashamed. There may be reasons from a human level why I ought to be ashamed, but I'm not ashamed. Because the scandal of the cross is by design. The scandal of the cross is by 
designed. If you just do a word study, the word ashamed shows up again in Romans chapter 6, verse 21. And that's where he's talking about the way that we as Christians used to live. God saved me, and I said that on purpose, God saved me in St. Cloud, Minnesota. As a senior year of my undergraduate time at the university, taking elements of moral philosophy, that's a very spiritually edifying class. And God saved me. And now I look back, and in Romans 6.21, he says, of those things of which you are now ashamed. When I think back, I think, no, no, God, keep me from going. I don't want that anymore. There's a place for that kind of shame that leads to repentance. But Paul says, that's not what I'm talking about here. Am I ashamed of my sin? That's not what we're talking about. He says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. And beloved I just want to unsaddle you from the burden that I often feel. You don't have to have five PhDs to be an effective evangelist or apologist. You feel that pressure sometimes in a world of ideas? I got to know astrophysics and mathematics and epistemology and philosophy. If I really want to preach the gospel, no, no, no. He says, I am not ashamed to preach a gospel that will scandalize the wise and the rich and those who think they are of something of good report in this world. No, no. He says, I am not ashamed because the foolishness of the cross demands bold proclamation more than rhetorical precision. The gospel is scandalous by design. We should eagerly preach this gospel to one another and to those outside of the church. Number one, it is a scandalous truth. What else, Paul? Why are you so eager to preach to us, Paul? What is this gospel? Number two, it is a powerful truth. It is a powerful truth. He goes on, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, okay, for it is the power of God for salvation. You know, just because a message is scandalous, and shocking doesn't necessarily mean that it is persuasive. There are many messages in the world that shock our sensibilities, but it doesn't mean we're going to be persuaded by them. And Paul says, not only is it scandalous, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God. Whether it is our own obstinate hearts or the stony hearts of unsaved friends and neighbors, co-workers, and maybe as Pastor Jason has been encouraging you to go and preach, declare, maybe you've been thinking about praying for neighbors, thinking about praying for co-workers, thinking about praying for children or grandchildren or people in your family, and if you're like me, sometimes my heart gets fearful and I think, Lord, I, how could so-and-so ever become Christian? How could they ever delight in Christ? They, they're so in love with sin I can't get through. Am I the only one who gets discouraged by that sometimes? I got a lot of bad sermons in my brain. I ought not listen to myself. And that's why I need this reminder. It's not just that we have a scandalous message. We have a powerful truth. Spiritual deadness. Ephesians 2, 3, you were 
dead in your trespasses and sins, meaning you were really, really spiritually dead. But because of God's great mercy, because of the power of the gospel, he made you alive. And in my Bible, I circle the word power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And I drew a line up to verse 4, where it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. How? By the resurrection. And that's exactly what the gospel does for sinners. It is not a moral renovation. It is a resurrection. And it is by the sovereign, single-handed, monergistic power of God. So come what may, that friend, that loved one, that child, whoever it may be, your own heart where you get up, you say, I went to bed loving Jesus and I woke up and I just feel cold. What do I need? I need resurrection power. They need resurrection power. Power, where is that going to be found? Paul says, I'm not ashamed to preach this gospel to you because God has invested his power there. It's exactly what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So he says, we're proclaiming a foolish message that many will mock. He goes, but as we proclaim, something happens in it. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 4 through 6, he says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He just went back to Genesis. So you're saying when you, when you proclaim this scandalous message to the world that something on the level of creative power ex nihilo happens in their hearts? Yes. To do what? To enable them to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why are you so eager to preach the gospel in Rome, Paul? Rome is filled with a lot of ideas and and intellectual heavy hitters. What do you have to offer? He says, I have the creative power of God that calls planets into being and they call faith into being. He says, I'm eager to preach this gospel to you because Paul knew that it was not only for those who had never heard it, but it was for those who needed to hear it again and again and again and again. He knew exactly what Charles Wesley would write about 1,700 years later. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke in the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is exactly why Paul was eager to preach the gospel, because it has that kind of resurrection power. Number three, it is a global truth. It is a global truth. Not only is it a scandalous truth, a powerful truth, it is a global truth. Back to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So I drew a circle around everyone, and I drew a line back to verse 5, where he says, we aim to bring the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. You know, it's interesting. I love Paul. 
And um, sorry, I have tiny little ears. It's going to stay on. I love Paul. And if you follow his writing, <clears throat> you will notice that he has a very high threshold for tension. And <clears throat> what I mean is this. The same Paul who wrote Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he called. And those we called, he justified. And those we justified, he glorified. The same Paul who wrote that, which is called the golden chain of redemption, is the same Paul who says, I want to come and preach to everybody everywhere. And Romans is also... One of the functions of this letter is a missionary support letter because at the end of Romans, he says, I'm coming to you because I want to be helped by you and I hope that you send me on my way to preach Christ where he's not been named. It's, it's a missionary letter. So in the beginning, in the end, it is bookended by being missional. I want to bring the obedience of faith to Jesus Christ among the nations and at the end he says, in Rome, one of the reasons I'm coming to you is because I want you to support me in that and send me. Paul wanted to preach Christ where he had not been named. So you see the tension. The same guy who says God is sovereign, he is predestined, he is called. Not to mention Romans 9. Is the same Paul who says, I'm coming and I'm preaching to everybody. I would venture that it was the reality of God's absolute sovereignty over the salvation of his elect that fueled Paul's missionary zeal. Like you and me, Paul did not have a list of names. When he went to Corinth, when he went everywhere he went, God did not text him and say, okay, here's the list of the elect. Go get them. He was ready to leave one town. He says, your blood be on your own heads. My ministry is done. And Jesus says, no, 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 I have many people in this city. Keep preaching. My next question would be, who are they? But this Paul, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's willing to walk in the tension of God's electing sovereignty and this. He knew that the general call of the gospel would be accompanied by the effectual call of God. That's what fuels missions. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and how are they going to hear that if we don't preach and how we preach if we don't go I went to Mongolia three years ago 1% Christian little piles of rocks and ribbons and trees to the spirits and ancestors and different things and a big statue of Buddha in downtown Ulaanbaatar what hope do we have when, when you're facing that what do you have to offer <laughs> you preach the gospel you preach it clearly, you preach it with love, you exalt Jesus Christ, and you find I am not ashamed to preach it because it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, not just Minnetonka, but Mongolia. You preach that gospel, and by the power of God's Spirit, someone's coming out. That's what fuels enduring missions. Let's read the lives of William Carey. some of these other missionaries that lost so much. How do you get up in the morning and keep at it? Because this gospel is a scandal, but it is the power of God. Paul was eager to preach this gospel to them, 
and abroad, just as I am eager to preach it to you. And as I'm preaching it to you, I'm wanting it to bounce off the wall and come back and land on my heart. This is a scandalous truth, a powerful truth, a global truth. Number four, it is a necessary truth. It is a necessary truth. Some of you thought I said unnecessary. That's why I'm being clear. It is a necessary truth. Look at what he says here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, that's why I love Romans. Thank you, Paul. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And obviously, what came before, what is the reference, is in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And again, you might ask the question, why, why does God's righteousness have to be revealed? Can't you just preach? Well, I learned a lesson that I'll never forget from one evangelist. He says, the greatest problem in Scripture, the greatest, if you want to know, if you hand someone a Bible and they say, what's this all about? You know, there's, there's a lot of information here, a lot of stories, a lot of things I don't understand. You could say the Bible in total is aiming to answer one great dilemma. And they would say, okay, well, where do I find that? You say, well, you can find it in a lot of places, but if you want to find it most succinctly, you would go to a very unexpected place. You would go to Proverbs 17, 15. Proverbs 17, 15. You just skim past it. You, know, you read the Proverbs sometimes. You just kind of go through. And, but it's right there. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And yet the whole reason we're here with joy in our hearts this morning is because we who were wicked have been justified by the Lord. How does he do it? How does a righteous God declare unrighteous people to be righteous without his becoming unrighteous? You see, that's the great dilemma of Scripture. How can sinners be made right with a holy God? It's not enough to say, well, he just kind of puts our sin under a big cosmic rug somewhere. No. Any judge on the bench in Hennepin County or Stearns County or anywhere else that did that says, well, I'm a loving judge, so I'm just going to let it go. It's not going to fly. How will he do it? How can you not annihilate a coward and a liar like Abraham? How, how can you be friends with him? Not to mention David, a man after your own heart. Do you know what he's done? Can you imagine the heyday that Satan would have with that when his name means accuser? You wonder what that whole scene was in Narnia when the white witch points at Edmund and to Aslan and says, that boy has broken the deep magic, he's mine. That's us. How does the gospel remedy this? I think I have time. How can Paul say, for in it, I'm not ashamed of it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness, his character is intact. He's not unjust. He's not lacking justice. He doesn't have to choose, well, I can be holy or I can be just. He doesn't have to do that. And the gospel spells out how that is so. And probably nowhere more clear than Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Which I would say all the major arteries of Scripture, like little roads, all meet 
at the junction of Romans 3, 21 through 26. How can, how can he just forgive us? And how can he show that he's righteous in doing so? Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Follow with me if you would. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed. Almost a complete recapitulation of Romans 1, 16 and 17. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So now we're getting into the inner mechanics of the gospel. How does he do this? They're justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, love that word, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. So everything that Paul's talking about, okay, so Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I want to preach it to you. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. How does it save people that really deserve punishment? He says that Jesus stood in their place of wrath as a propitious sacrifice to be received by faith. And now, he says here in verse 25, latter half, This, this gospel, was to show, there was a showing function, a revelatory function to the gospel. This was to show God's righteousness. Aha! Now we get it. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Why wasn't David turned to a pile of ash on the spot if the wages of sin is death? Why did Adam and Eve come out covered in animal skins and on and on and on? The drumbeat of Scripture. You are holy. They are not. How are you going to do this? It's right here. It, the gospel, verse 26, was to show his righteousness at the present time. Martin Lloyd-Jones would refer to that as the vindication of God. He says, you want to call me unjust? You want to think that I'm sacrificing my holiness for the sake of forgiving people like Abraham and David and Aaron White and us? No, no. He says, the cross was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. (laughs) For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, faith from first to last. And do we not need to hear that word? This whole gospel, this whole, this whole matrix of salvation that we go and preach is not, well, it's faith in the beginning, but you have to keep yourself saved as you go along. It says, no. Propitiation means wrath is gone. One of the best things that you can preach to yourself when Satan seems to be sitting on the foot of the bed reminding you of all the things you did in high school and college and yesterday is Romans 8, 1, to say there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no hell for those that are in Christ Jesus. Well, how'd you get there? By faith, not by my works. I will not boast in me, but I will boast in my Redeemer. Get behind me, Satan. 
This is a necessary truth because this gospel answers the greatest conundrum in all of Scripture. How can a righteous God declare unrighteous people to be righteous without becoming unrighteous? Jesus! It's the key that unlocks a million mysteries in the Old Testament, isn't it? Why all the animals? Why all the blood? Why all the failed leaders and redeemers and all the priests and all this going on? Luke 24, 44, what does Jesus say? Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it's all about me. Show us Christ, show us Christ indeed. Paul was eager to preach this gospel because it is a scandalous truth, a powerful truth, a global truth. It is a necessary truth. And finally, it is a historical truth. A historical truth. So as Paul often does, if you just read the book of Romans, he grounds his entire ministry in the Old Testament. There's many, many cross-references to the Old Testament in Romans because he wants to make sure that they know that I'm not coming with anything new, I'm not coming with any new revelation. Everything I'm preaching about Jesus as the Messiah is thoroughly anchored in Scripture, and here he does it again from Habakkuk 2, verse 4. For in it, this is verse 17, Romans 1, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Maybe we should, maybe we should temper our zeal. We live in a world filled with new versions of spirituality and paths to enlightenment, don't we? Maybe the gospel is just another half-baked fairy tale. Maybe it's just a new kid on the block in the pantheon of ideas that we face every day. Paul knows. Paul uses the diatribe model all the time. When he's like arguing with himself, if you read through Romans, you think that he has like split personality. No, but what he's doing is he's foreseeing the objection in their brain and he's articulating it before they can say it. And so he's thinking, I'm preaching something scandalous and powerful, and I, I just really want you to know, just in case you're thinking it, this is nothing new. This is where Scripture is going. This is the storyline of Scripture. I know you guys are studying that, and that's all leading to Calvary. It is a historical truth. This has always been God's plan of redemption from the promise of the snake crusher in the garden to Noah's ark. You ever notice that? What is the water? God's wrath against sin. What does he do? He puts them inside and seals them to keep them safe from judgment. Is that not a picture of Jesus? From the water gushing from the rock in Exodus 17 that 1 Corinthians tells us, and the rock was Christ. They deserved judgment that day in Meribah. They were taking God to court. They were saying, you're a covenant God, but we're dying of thirst and hunger. You've broken your promises. They deserve to be killed for that kind of blasphemy. But what does God say? He says, if they want to have court, fine. Go get some witnesses, build a jury, take the staff that they know is the staff of judgment that touched the Nile, and go, and we'll have court. And you're thinking, oh, he's going to get them. I'm not being vindictive. If you read and make it through Deuteronomy, you're praying the same thing. Just get them. No more complaining. But he doesn't do it. What does he say? He says, I will stand there before you, and I'll take the hit. And water comes out and blesses them. What is that? If not, Jesus. 
the bronze serpent on the pole? You get bit by a snake? How do you get healed? Look at the very thing that infected you and don't do anything but trust Yahweh to save you? Flash forward to John 3. What does Jesus say? Just as the serpent was lifted up, he who knew no sin became sin, lifted up as a substitutionary atonement, the very thing that infected us, he took upon himself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every time an ambulance drives by and I see that snake on a pole thing, I think, I think that's what it's pointing to, and maybe they don't know it. But I see a snake wrapped around a pole when I see an ambulance go by, and I go, <laughs> Amen. I needed that today. And don't, don't miss this, guys. We're going to wrap up. It says in Romans 1, He's quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. But I like the alternate rendering of that. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. The one who has sinned against a holy God, but by faith in his Redeemer, in this gospel, shall live. And what does Jesus promise? You will live eternally. That is what the great magisterial reformer Martin Luther would say Simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously justified and sinner. That's a scandal. That the judge would not only clear us, but that his son would pay our penalty. And then not only that, but he would adopt us and say, Beloved, 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 call me Abba, you, my children. <laughs> beloved, we should be unashamed of this truth. We should rejoice in this gospel. Like Paul, we should be eager to preach this gospel for Christians, for their joy and their perseverance, and to our unbelieving friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors. We need it ourselves to fight gospel amnesia. I can wake up looking to Jesus and singing the doxology, and because of fear and worry and anxiety and depression and a million other things, I go to bed singing a funeral dirge, and looking at myself instead of looking to Calvary. What do we need? We need the gospel. So I close with these admonitions, and I'm, I'm, using, I'm using your verbiage, because I like it. I think it's good. Are you determined to go? Are you eager with joy and zeal to declare the gospel to those who remain in sin and unbelief? You don't have to dress it up, brother. You don't have to apologize for it, sister. You don't have to have five PhDs in theology and astrophysics and other things. It doesn't need rhetorical flourishes. It just needs love in the heart, joy, truth, Jesus. What will make us determined to go? Hopefully not our zeal alone because our zeal waxes and wanes. What fuels going into hard spaces? It is the knowledge that God is sovereign and he has endowed this gospel with his own power. If you are determined to go, are you dependent on each other? Are you dependent on each other? There's no lone wolves in Christianity. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14 is an admonishment to believers. What does it say? Be careful, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And Christians go, what do you mean? 
What do we do? And he goes on to say, but exhort one another every day. With what? The gospel. Brother, look to Christ. Robert Murray McShane, for every one look to yourself, give ten looks to Christ. I need to hear that over and over and over. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it. How's he going to do that? Through the means of brothers and sisters who come along and love you and talk about sports and different things. But at the end of the day, they say, I'm for your joy in Christ. So tell me, how are you doing spiritually? You know how many times God has used flesh and blood people to pull me off the ledge of apostasy? A well-timed text message or email or a word of exhortation. Say, thank you, thank you. Yes, show me Christ, brother. Because I'm not seeing it today. If you're determined to go, you've got to be dependent on each other to speak this gospel into your lives. And finally, are you desperate for God? Do we realize that our weakness is overcome by daily rehearsing the gospel and seeing the beauty of Jesus? Do we come in here and say, Lord, I need, I want that song. <laughs> show me Christ, show me Christ, show me Christ. So I will say, with great humility, but with great honesty. I'm determined to go. I'm dependent on you and other believers. I can say with Paul, I want to come to you and be encouraged by your faith, and I want to encourage your faith so we do this. But I'm desperate for God because I know in and of myself, I'm too fickle, too weak. And if you resonate with that, it would be an absolute joy and an absolute honor to be determined and dependent and desperate with you. And that is our desire. So let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And I just briefly pray, God, for my brothers and sisters here, as I pray for my own heart. We live in fearful times. We live in uncertain times. There are a million things vying for our attention and our affection and the idolatrous bowing down to anxiety and fear as if it were sovereign over you. It is not. Show us Christ in your word. Show us Christ at your table. And God, would you increase their joy a hundredfold so they leave this building bold to proclaim a gospel that to the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. In your name, amen.